0: I have to forgive my voice, I'm just getting over bronchitis, so if I start hacking, you guys will just pray, alright? And I'll just cough for a while. (laughs) But we'll see if we get through it anyway. Um, Luke chapter 18 is where we're headed this morning. And you won't have to turn anywhere else. How about that? I'll give you a break from Chris's (laughs) journey through the scriptures. I've been assigned to talk to you about prayer in the last days. It's a great topic. Prayers is such a big topic. I thought maybe what I could do is, and what I intend to do, is spend my two mornings or my two studies with you this morning and this afternoon talking about these two parables that Jesus tells here. But they are placed in the context of the last days. In fact, if you look in chapter 17, verse 20, and by the way, we are maybe a month and a half away from the cross as far as chronology is concerned. But we read in verse 20 when he he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He said the kingdom of God doesn't come by observation. Nor will they say see here or see there for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. You know the big issue of course was this understanding of, of, of God's purpose in coming to establish the kingdom of God in the hearts of men. Everybody's expectations, not even the disciples could get off the hook. Were were to believe that Jesus, when he came, would just take over. There was not this distinction in their hearts between the first and second coming of Christ. But they would learn that soon enough. In fact, the the day that Jesus ascended into heaven, they said to him in Acts chapter 1, Are you going to establish the kingdom now? And he said, It's not really for you to know. But now that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, go be my witnesses and start here and, and reach the ends of the earth. Well, this was the question here that the Pharisees came to ask Jesus. And he mentions that the kingdom of God would be within you. And then he would say in verse 22 to the disciples, The days will come and you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man you won't see. There'll be days when they'll say, look here, look there, don't go after them, don't follow them. For as the lightning flashes out of one part under heaven and shines to the other part of heaven, so shall the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he has to suffer many things. And be rejected by this generation. And then he goes to speak about his second coming. As it was in the days of Noah, verse 26. As it was in the days of Lot, verse 28. Verse 30, even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So that's the context of the discussion. The the idea that the Lord is not going to be ruling and reigning first. He's going to suffer first. That his kingdom is going to be established in the hearts of men first. That we're going to be saved. There's a second coming. And it is in that context of waiting upon his return. Like we read there in verse 26 or verse 28. That there was this unexpectedness of his return. Both in judgment and all. That we begin in verse 18 with these words. Then he spoke a parable to them. That men ought always to pray. And not to lose heart. You know, today, much like in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot, there, there is pretty much a great unconcern for the days in which we live in, in, in terms of the world. We know from the scriptures that the days before the Lord's return for the church and the rapture are difficult days. Paul said to Timothy, I think, in chapter 3 and and talked about there would be perilous times. So you live in a pretty cool generation, you know, you're living in a position and in a place where the Lord may very well come in your generation. But because of that, you, you face some pretty difficult times. You know, this disconnect and this this upheaval that, that kind of brings it to pass, if you will. And the difficulties that are faced by you and I as believers are much the same as, you know, Noah faced in his day or Lot faced in his. There were few, you know, the Bible doesn't say that we're ever a majority. We're always a remnant, aren't we? We're always the minority, and yet, in the context of this generation, this is the generation God's called us to reach. So, I I like the fact that we're alive now. I know the world stinks and everything's getting worse around us, but that's a great place to work, isn't it? It seems to me the darker it gets, the brighter we shine. So, in that context, Jesus tells his disciples a parable. Notice, his intention is to have them praying as they wait for his return and not to lose heart. How are you and I supposed to live in a kingdom where God is ruling in our hearts, but we're not really of this world? This isn't our home. We're kind of hanging out, you know? If we didn't have a work to do, you should just get baptized when you get saved and just not come up. Just go home. (laughs) You're finished. You're saved. You're in. That's it. Just There you go. But you come up because there's a world to reach. But but how do we reach a world that, that wants nothing to do with him and that you know, kills a million and a half innocent kids every year and teaches humanism in the schools and the, you know, the disintegration of the family and the wars and rumors of wars and, and all the perversion that's heaped upon us. How are we as believers living on the brink of 2016? How are we supposed to live for Jesus now? And what can we do as we wait? What should we be doing? We agree, if you go back to verse 22, that we desire to see the days when the Son of Man will come. I got saved in 1973. I was two years old, apparently. <laughs> and I remember thinking, we, we when I was... Well, what the, how old was I in 73? Well, I was old, already. Right? Anyway, we, started, we took out ads in the LA Times for years telling people, hey, if we disappear one day, here's a post office box, and here's a phone number, call and, and you'll find out why we're not here. Because we were just sure the Lord was coming back. And then at some point, we began to lose interest. And then at some other point, you again look up and you go, Man, we, we are right there. It is close now. But how do we wait? How do we wait? Can things get any worse? And Jesus speaks to them in this context. As they, or as we should, I should say, contemplate the length and the difficulty of the period between the kingdom of God being established in our hearts, verse 21, and the return of the Lord for his church, which starts there in verse 21. Wow. After his death, after his resurrection, now we have that interim period. And instead of losing heart or growing faint, Jesus says to his own, you've got to pray. And you've got to know the heart of God towards you as you're praying and living in this situation. And he speaks to them about living a hopeful and a confident and an excited life because at a time when few by comparison hear or care, in a time when you and I are under as much scrutiny and persecution as the church has been in in quite some time, uh, we, we, we are, you know, it's easy to get your heart grow cold and you get a little disappointed, a little discouraged. And God has just the opposite in mind for you. Especially in these last days in that context. That's what it says up here, or it said up there, right? <laughs> we're prayer in the last days, that's what we're all talking about. Well, I want you to notice in verse 1, and, and again in verse 9 where we'll start our second study this afternoon since the parables are right with each other. That these are the only two parables found in the scriptures that have Prefaces. Now, there are some parables where the Lord explains them afterwards. When the disciples come and they say, you know, what did that mean? And you know, oh, let me tell you what that means. But before Jesus tells these two parables, he tells us why he tells them. He, he gives us his intent. So that the purpose of this parable was to teach the disciples to always be praying and never lose heart in the days in which they lived, as they waited for the Lord to return, much like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. This is what is God's design for you and I. We should be praying without becoming discouraged or losing heart. And, and in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, with a very minimum of words. And don't you think Jesus is good at words? You know, he doesn't waste words, does he? You know, Jesus creates for us this indelible picture of two very distinct individuals from which he wants to drive home the one important lesson from verse 1. That you ought always to pray as you're waiting and not to lose heart or not to faint. To faint. So let's read down through verse 5. He said this, There was in a certain city a judge who didn't fear God nor regard man. Nor now there was also a widow in that city, and she came to him and said, Get justice for me, for my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterwards he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she wearies me. Verse 2, here comes the judge. And he's not a very good judge at all, is he? He was a judge in a city that didn't fear God, nor feared man. If he were a Jew, he would have openly been defying a primary qualification of the judge, and that was he should fear the Lord. This guy wasn't that guy. When King Jehoshaphat took steps to restore godliness to the nation after Ahab died, there in Second Chronicles 19, his first action was to go get judges who feared the Lord. Let's go back to judges who feared the Lord. That would be good in our country as well, wouldn't it? Get some judges who fear the Lord. A judge without a fear of God or, or a knowledge of God has no ethic outside of himself to drive his judgments. So here's a guy that is absolutely driven by only self-interest, carries no burden spiritually or ethically or morally to somehow head in the right direction, He is only driven by what might benefit himself. So he makes his judgments and his decisions from a personal point of view. And that's his description in Jesus' parable. There was in a certain city a judge, and he didn't care for God. He didn't care for man. He was only interested in himself. If verse 2 is here comes the judge, verse 3 is here comes the widow. There was a widow in that city, and she came to this unjust judge to get justice over her adversary. Luke, by the way, writes more about widows than any of the other gospel writers, and they're always portrayed in the same manner. A widow, in Luke's gospels, is a symbol of hopelessness. She is usually armed with nothing. She is entirely defenseless in the culture. They are, in the Bible, often seen as oppressed, without recourse. God gives them wonderful promises of protection and provision and oversight, but but they are portrayed as, as, as those who are absolutely uh, on their own, if you will, and in need of great help. Now, notice that this woman comes to this aforementioned judge. She doesn't come to get vengeance. She comes simply to get justice. This isn't some lawsuit of, I'm going to really make a mint. She just wants to get what's rightfully due to her. We're not told the situation or the circumstance. We're only told that, that she has been taken advantage of. It's an adversary. It's an enemy. And she brings it to who has to be probably the worst possible judge she could get. You know, oh no, you got the hanging judge. You got that guy, you know? And, and it's written in the imperfect tense. The word came there um, is imperfect, which suggests that she didn't just come one time to his court. She may have come a lot. And she may have come to him not just in the court, but in the town square or in the marketplace, that she would have approached him maybe to get some help in front of his colleagues or. Or, or confronted him on the street. She came alive. She wasn't a problem woman. She just had no one else to turn to. Right? That's the picture that Jesus is painting. She doesn't have anyone else that she can go to. She's desperate. She's not a badger. She's just desperate. Desperate people do desperate things. He's, a, he's the only one that she can turn to for her defense. She has no other avenues to pursue. Here comes the judge. Here comes the widow. Here comes justice. Verse 4 says, he would not for a while. And again, imperfect tense verbs, which means that every time she came, he went, yeah, no. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really busy right now. make an appointment, call the secretary, maybe next Tuesday. And she's dying in her knees, and he's just putting her off. No response, no concern, no care, refusing her case and her plea. And the reason is fairly simple. The, The judge sees no benefit in it for him. Remember, he doesn't regard man, and he has no fear of the Lord. So there's no sense in helping her. What's in it for me, he might have asked. Nothing. Well, then go away. Can't be bothered by the likes of you. I'm too busy. I'm too important. There, there really is nothing here for me at all. Yet the widow continues to come. Her, her needs are too great to stop. She doesn't have anywhere else to turn. The words he uses here eventually are lest by her continual coming she weary me. I'll help her because she's just bothering me. Verse five. Yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her. Lest by her continual coming she weary me. The word weary is the Greek word for black and blue, or the suggestion is she'll punch me. She'll give me a black eye, not physically, but just you know she's making me look bad here. She's she keeps everybody's wondering why I'm such a hard-headed guy and. And unless and, and I get beat to death by her, I'm gonna—I'm just gonna help her to get, you know, get her out of my life. The squeaky wheel gets the grease, kind of deal, right? Notice the motivation for this judge is consistently selfish interest. Selfish interest—that's all that he cares about. I got to get rid of her. So that's the painting in—in in a nutshell, right? A, a very self-centered judge with great power, a very helpless woman with no power. Her only means of help are to continue to come. His only reason for helping her is he's tired of her knocking on his door day and night. So that's the portrait. The reason Jesus is telling the parable, because in the, in the interim between his first and second coming, we as the church need to pray and not faint. Right? <clears throat> that's the picture. Now Jesus takes the parable and the intent of verse 1 and he makes the application beginning in verse 6 to his disciples in the context. Don't forget the context. Last days waiting for the Lord in a hostile world. Jesus says, verse 6, Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge has said. Unfortunately, many folks, like they do with many parables, immediately take the wrong lesson and run with it. There are plenty of Bible commentators, in fact, who look at this parable and they will say to you, um, what the Lord is wanting us to do is to frantically beg and feverishly seek after God day and night, because that's the only way we're going to survive. And the answer is, that's ridiculous. You know, God is God. He's going to do what he thinks is best. I, I think the first thing we should realize is that the lesson in verse 1, in the context, is that this is a parable not of comparison, but of contrast. And, and whenever you have contrast parables, the distance between the truth and the picture that is painted, it is made as far as possible so that the lesson is most easily identified. In other words, we want to be sure that this unjust judge is more and most unlike the Lord that we serve. That's the idea. And that we, rather than being helpless and, and having to cry out, oh man, we can barely survive, are, are not at all in that helpless position because we know the great judge, the good judge, the Lord of all. The clear lesson is that, that God is not at all like this judge. That we are not outfending for ourselves that we belong to him. If this were a lesson of comparison, then the judge would represent God. And we would have to walk away from this saying to ourselves, God is unloving. God is evil. God is self-serving and merciless and unjust. If if God is that, then, then that would be the lesson. But if God is the opposite of those things... Then we would learn that God is more than willing to answer prayer. He's available to us constantly. He wants to help. We should be able to find that comfort in going to Him as we wait for Him to return, especially living in the kind of world that we do. We're going to need His help more than ever to not balk, to not compromise, to not back down, to not be ashamed of the Lord who's not ashamed of us. If this were a parable of comparison, we would conclude God's not very kind. But, you can badger him. Sometimes people think like that I think about the Lord, don't they? They'll say, well, I was praying a lot. I'm like, well, if I prayed a little, I wouldn't have got what I wanted, but I was praying a lot. And God comes out of the back. Yeah, he got me right there. <laughs> and he did it because he just got tired of me badgering him. He wanted to get me off his back. Not at all. So what did we read? The Lord says, hear what the unjust judge has said. Here's his motivation. And then he compares the judge with himself. Shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him though he bears long with them? Shall not God, or literally, if you want to translate the words correctly, at least from a Greek context, how much more shall God not avenge in understanding the heart of God versus the heart of this judge? The Lord's heart is for us, isn't it? Not against us. The Lord's heart is with us he wants to answer. He wants to 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 respond. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. And that what it says. Psalm. Where is that? Thirty-three, maybe somewhere in there. Maybe it's thirty-four. I don't. Know. It's in there. I'm pretty sure it's thirty-four. I should look them up before I start quoting them. But I'm pretty sure it's thirty-four. The righteous cry, the Lord hears, delivers them out of all of their trouble. That's in the same psalm, so you'll find it. Call upon me and I will answer you. Show you great and mighty things you know not of. That's Jeremiah, right? 33.3. 3. I know that one. That's right. I'm a pastor. I know stuff.
1: <laughs>
0: Look, we know that God loves to answer prayer. Now, now listen to what Jesus says. Listen to the unjust judge. He's only going to help because he's put out. He doesn't care about God. doesn't care about people. God's not at all like that. Shall not God. How much more shall your God not avenge his own chosen ones as they cry out day and night to him, when, as we wait for his return, though he bears long with them. Though he bears long with them. God loves to answer prayer. He desires that we would come as a church, and contrary to the judge in the parable. He doesn't need badgering. He doesn't need unrelenting kind of begging to move in our behalf. God's will, if, if you would know his heart, would be that you and he could be together today. You have to believe that God is as anxious to get with you as you are to get with Him. That if He's waiting, there's a more important reason that He's willing to make that sacrifice. And the more important reason, is, as Pastor Chris pointed out, is that some of you just made it. You barely got in. You barely got in. You've just been saved for a few years. If the Lord had come a few years earlier, you'd have had an entirely different way to get saved. You'd have had an entirely different cost to pay to make. It. But the Lord waited for you. And so He bears long with us. He waits long. It isn't that he's not willing to answer. Lord, come. Don't you pray that every day? I get up every morning and say, Lord, today would be a really good day. Really good day. If I have to go to the dentist, I pray twice. Lord, come today. Right? I really want you to come today. Like before 3 would be good, or 3.15 at the work. I do pray like that. We are welcome in his presence. We will be heard on high. We belong to him. We're his elect. Prayer is the privilege of the saints. And the best way for us to wait upon the Lord to come is that we have to be convinced that he wants to hear from us and that he wants to answer those prayers and to see us through and not become discouraged as we wait and we wait and we wait. You know, the world looks at prayer much like the story here in the parable they, they really believe through much... You know, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about the Pharisees, they think through much You know, speaking, God's going to listen. That, that somehow... You know, I, I grew up Catholic. How many of you guys grew up Catholic? Why is it every Calvary is filled with ex-Catholic? Well, all right. I'll tell you why. We had the right Jesus buried under a lot of other stuff. We have the right Jesus. He's God. He, he, he's, he's born of a virgin. He rose. Right? He died for my sins. That's all right. Everything else is just wrong. Right? But I used to pray those those rosaries... And man, I could do those in my sleep, and you just knock a few of those out, you know? Figuring if you did a lot of them, the Lord would hear it. And I'd say to my mom, hey, I'm really worried about the test, and she'd go, say an extra rosary. It's extra rosary. All right, well, you need an extra rosary. Under the impression somehow God moved when I battered him. When I knocked him around a little bit, when I demanded him, look how serious I am, Lord, I'm gonna say five more of these. You're gonna come through no matter what. It's a weird idea, but that's what I believe. It's kind of like that confrontation Elijah had with the prophets of Baal there, you know, and, and kings and how he, he mocked those prophets and he said to them, well, maybe, maybe you should yell a little louder, maybe God's asleep, you know. Maybe he's talking, maybe he's off on a journey, maybe he's indisposed is what the Hebrew word suggests, he's on the, the poppy, you know. He's in the bathroom, he's indisposed. Maybe your God is just really too busy, maybe he's asleep, You maybe need to wake him up. They scream and cut themselves. That's kind of the concept of God and And prayer, but but that's not our concept of God. He's not put out by your calling. He longs to answer, and he will. And then you read this and you say, well then why is it that when I pray and God continues to not respond, or it seems to take forever, how am I supposed to look at this? Factor this in. Whatever you, you, you do with that, factor in the fact that God in his love for you longs to answer prayer, would like to be with you today. Would love to be with you today. I'm sure of that. But he wants as many as will come to come. If there's a delay, it is with utmost importance. and I don't want you to construe the fact as a negative reflection on the heart of God. Well, God doesn't seem to care. If God cared, you'd see how important this was to me. No, no, no. Remember, God is the antithesis of this wicked judge. The antithesis. It's what Peter said in his second letter, right? The Lord's not slack concerning his promises. God's not lying. God's not slack. God's not not shutting down. The Lord's not slack, as some might count slackness. It is, it is that God is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish. All should come to repentance. Oh, Lord, come today. Well, except, you know, I still got a sister who needs to get saved. Lord, come today after you save her. Oh, and then there's a neighbor that really needs... Lord, today after the sister and the neighbor, then come. And the postman, the sister, the neighbor, the postman, and the dentist. Oh, yeah, the dentist needs to get saved. Lord, then... God is long-suffering now there's a time when that'll be it. but how do we wait for the Lord to come in these last days between the kingdom of God within you and the kingdom of God upon the earth? and the answer is just keep praying, don't lose heart. God wants to come. God loves to hear. God will answer. Don't be discouraged, don't misconstrue the fact that he's patiently waiting for others. The judge delays because he is put out. he only helps to rid himself of the bother the Lord delays to accomplish his goodness. He gives the world another day to repent. He gives you another day to shine. He's got some plans. And in the face of a heart that longs to gather us all together, God sees our needs, he has a plan. He is never laid, he is driven by love, and all things work together for God. To those who love the Lord and are the called according to his purposes. And I think that you have to you have to plant those truths next to your understanding when apparent delays are viewed as somehow a lack of concern or you know, that seemed to take the life out of us. Oh, I used to be so excited about the Lord's coming, and then it just kind of died in me. It should be that which is foremost in my mind. Right? Isn't, isn't the, the promise to those who are looking up? Your redemption draws not to look up. Yeah, how often do we just look down, look around, go, Ugh. So So, look, Lord, today, and the Lord goes, no, I'm waiting for a few more. All right, maybe tomorrow. But certainly by 3 o'clock on Thursday, because of the... <laughs> It's important that we see it together. I, you know, I'm sure all of us have had the, the, the Mary and Martha moment who both said to Jesus after Lazarus' death, if you'd have just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. If you'd have just been here, you just showed up. But you didn't. Yeah, he had a better plan, didn't he? It was a much better plan. In fact, when Lazarus got raised from the dead, we, we read that at the feast, as people came, there were just droves of people who went to his house and poked him, them. Hey, he's alive. I'm going to believe in Jesus, too. You know, we see it as, as, gosh, Lord, why haven't you come? And the Lord looks at us, look at some who have come now. Shall God not avenge his own who cry out to him night and day? Look, God's not hampered by or hindered by a lack of concern for us or a selfish attitude. He bears long as he sees our suffering in the world. We, we, we read in verse 22 we're wanting to see and desire to see the days when the Son of Man will come, and we're not seeing it, and it hurts. And yet he has a purpose in his delay. Shall I not, verse 8, avenge them speedily? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. And I stop and I go, that can't be true. Speedily? It's been 40 years since I've been saved. That's not my definition of speedily. <laughs> speedily is like quickly, isn't it? Well, except this isn't what that word is. This isn't the word for, for immediately. It's the word for swiftly or, 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 the, or the answer is when the Lord comes, it's going to be over really quick. That's what he's saying. I will come and in a moment's time I'll fix everything that ails you. In the twinkling of an eye, right? The Lord will be here and bam, fixed. So you're not very far away from the answer to this prayer, Lord, come quickly. You're just a twinkling of an eye away. You know, we'll never even look around going, hey, we're leaving now. We'll have been there already, you know? We'll be there already. Just like that. Isn't that amazing? So the Lord's promise isn't, I'm coming back right now. He's saying, when I come, don't think I got to work it up. Oh, Lord, are you getting ready? When I'm ready, it'll happen. And it'll happen immediately, swiftly. And our idea of swift and God's idea of swift, sometimes I guess they're two different things, but <clears throat> the, the implication is it'll happen in, in a moment's time. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, A, a thousand years are to the Lord like what? Monday. A day. Oh, that's a bummer, isn't it?
1: <laughs>
0: and a day to us is like a thousand years, isn't it? Just come on. Lord, we're... Uh, any delay is not God dragging His feet, but God doing things in their proper order of importance and accomplishments. He's not wasting time. He's not wasting your struggles. He's bearing long with you, even though you're suffering as you wait. He sees what you're going through. You're crying out as His people, saying, "I don't, Lord, I can't take any more of this. I'll come swiftly, in all good time." How do we suffer the rough days without turning back? How do we make a difference in our land as we wait for His return? One of the things we have to do is we have to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Not repetitive prayers as Jesus talked about there in Matthew 6, but with an attitude of knowing that God wants to answer and that he's longing to help. Remember that story, there, there's actually three of them total in, in the book of Luke, but back in, in Luke 11 there, um, Jesus in, in, in speaking to his disciples, after having taught them actually how to pray or given them that, that disciples prayer, if you will, told him a a story about a a fellow who had a a friend and and he said he went to him at midnight to borrow some bread because somebody had dropped by kind of unannounced and he he said as he yelled out of his bed yeah, you know, the kids are in bed, the animals are in I'm not getting up I am not getting up, I can't rise, I give it to you and then he said he he wouldn't rise because he's your friend in other words, his friendship with you wouldn't be what motivated him to help you it was just way too late, It's, it's too much trouble, I can't do it right now The Lord said, but if you keep knocking, he'll get up lest you wake his whole family up. Come on, I'm kidding. I need some bagels right now, right? All right, here, just shut up. Get out of here. And he used the same kind of picture. You have a friend whose love only goes so far before it's just put out. And then he turned that that around. He said, so let me say this to you. Ask. Ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek. And you'll find knock, and it will be open for everyone who asks, receives. And if you seek, you'll find to him who knocks, it'll be open. And those are all, you know, those, those, are, those are all those, those, what are they, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The word I'm looking for is uh, uh, perfect tense verbs, which mean you ask and you keep asking. You knock and you keep knocking. You seek and you keep seeking. Why? Because God is also a friend who can, you know, get tired of loving you. No, because he's so different from the way the world loves us. That you can be motivated to always come because God loves it when you do come. But understand that his response to you is going to factor in the bigger picture. He wants to come get you today. But he also wants to reach your mom and your dad and your daughter and your son and your neighbor and your friend and your workmates. And, and so there's that there's that struggle, isn't there? He wants all to be saved. At some point when the hammer drops, the hammer drops. And we're living at, at that that moment when, you know, that hammer may fall. You don't You don't wonder how much longer the world can last the way it's going. But understand that God's will is to answer now, immediately. All these perfect, perfect, uh, present tense, perfect tense, present perfect tense, that's what they are. mean, pray now, ask again, do it again, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, don't be discouraged. Keep coming, God loves you. He is motivated by that love. He's not like the unjust judge. He's not like the guy in bed who just won't get up if there's a delay then you just know that there's a reason. And God's reason is that that he might say more. Don't walk away from praying, God come and he has not or God answer and he has not with the wrong conclusion. God doesn't care. God doesn't, is not interested. God's lost interest, or God can't help. The ability to overcome the times in which we live and to stand the course and to stay the course, especially in these days, is that we have to have an intimacy with God that allows prayer to be a, a wonderful part of our lives, but also an Uh, an awareness of or a knowledge of God's heart that he's ready to come that he's for us and not against us that he he won't leave us or forsake us that he he loves to answer the church is in dire straits right but this is exactly where God wants us to be when when Peter um, was sent to write his letter and, and what a tough letter imagine put yourself in Peter's shoes it's like the summer of 64 AD and Nero has burned Rome down because he wants to rebuild it and The people have gone nuts, and so he does this. The church did it, right? And what had been localized persecution against the church from religious leaders becomes international overnight. And for the next 250 years, five or six million Christians are put to death for their faith as the Romans just purge or seek to purge the world of the believer. And Peter is given the job of writing to a church under such duress to encourage them. Imagine being in that position. And and Peter will be killed within three years of writing those things by the very guy Nero that is attacking the church. And so will Paul. They'll both be taken out by this. And so Peter has to sit down and write a letter to say to the church, hey, God's for us. God's doing great things. While people are getting hauled out of their houses and and burned at the stake and thrown to the lions and and beheaded, Peter has to write a letter of encouragement to the church. Imagine that. Well, he spends a whole chapter... um, talking about what they have in Christ as far as their future and their hope and, and heaven that circumstances can 't touch spends a whole chapter just saying here 's what you have in the Lord and you can 't lose it there's no way that this can be taken from you there's no way that you can can have this undermined you're, you can greatly rejoice if need be that for an, a while you're grieved now, but look the genuineness of your faith is going to be proven and you're, you're going to receive the end of your faith and you're going to receive the salvation of your souls. So gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Hope what is coming. The Lord's coming. And then in chapter 2, he turns from what they had to what they had to do. And and he says in verse 9 of First Peter to them, Look, God's chosen you as a precious people, special folks, you the church. And, and he has picked you to go and proclaim the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You, you used to not be his people, but now you are. And then he says in verse 12 of 1 Peter 2, have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so while they speak evil against you as, e- or that while they speak e- against you as evildoers, they might by your good works which they observe glorify God on the day of their visitation. Translation, live a godly life in such a way that even when people criticize you for your faith, when it comes right down to it, when the Lord comes knocking, they, they'll have a tendency to want to listen to Him because they've seen it in you. That's the way you should live. Show forth His praises. Live in a way that is honorable amongst, you know, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, who are watching to see how you respond. And then he spends literally the next chapter and a half defining one word, submission. Now imagine saying to the church under the days of Nero, submit yourself to every government authority for the Lord's sake. And you must have had, you know, Peter is a false prophet, right? <laughs> but he meant it. He meant it. How we respond in the world to unjust persecution, indifference, hardships that aren't fair, if we can just let the Lord handle it and trust Him for it, the world will see it because it is such a huge contrast between the way you and I would handle things in the world. We'll get even, we'll sue, we'll get every penny deserved us, and then some. You know, you hit me once, I hit you twice. It's pretty much the way the world works. And then you find the saints. And, And He says to them, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners, abstain from the fleshly lusts. Have your conduct honorable. And then he says, Therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it's the king or the governor. This is the will of God, that by doing good you might put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's how we wait, right? We live a godly life. We we trust the Lord to work things out. We pray without ceasing. We don't become discouraged. I'm not discouraged. I'm as excited as I've ever been. I, I... I'm getting older now, so I want the Lord to come before I go. I want to go with the bus. I want to go with the bus. You know what I'm saying? Preaching it too long to now have to go in the the town car. You know what I mean? I need to go with the bus. Um, And I'm not at all discouraged that the Lord isn't here yet. I know that He has a purpose. I know that He has a purpose. I know that He would be here for me and you today. That there would be no greater joy than for Him to spend time with us. That's the glory, really, that awaits us. But, not yet. So don't be discouraged. He's not the unjust judge. And we're not the widow. We're not here helpless and and begging and, and fearful and, and downtrodden. Oh, I know the church is the laughingstock of the world, but why wouldn't we be? The world doesn't get it. I don't expect the world to behave themselves wisely. I expect them to act like the world. It's the way the world is. You go, ah, that's the world. You know? They make fun of you. They... they, they we, I'm on the radio, 450 stations. We get death threats from people who just say, I'd like to come and chop you in pieces. And I want to say, well, I'm here till five. You know, (coughs) it doesn't really matter. But that's the world. The world acts like the world. You and I got to walk like the church. You know, we got an answer. I'm never ashamed of Jesus. I want to be ashamed of Jesus. I want to be really merciful and, you know, any homosexual can come to my church. As long as he's not holding hands with somebody else, he can come to church and hear about Jesus. I don't mind sinners. You know, we have drunks that show up. As long as they're quiet, let them stay. God bless them. Be merciful, but I'm never ashamed of Jesus. Amen. We can't be ashamed of him. And we've got to preach the gospel. But our best preaching is usually the way we live. Right? It's not what you look like here. You all are well behaved here. Or Xavier will toss you out of here. All... <laughs> it's, uh, how are you at work? How are you at your neighbors? How are you with your families? You know, are you living the life in such a way that that when they see you, they might, even if they speak of you as evildoers, they may glorify the Lord on the day he comes knocking at their door, because they'll hear it and they'll go, well, you know, I know so and so, and, and he's real, he's for real. The world needs him for real, they've got plenty of not so for real. So the ability to overcome the times and be ready for the Lord's return ultimately comes back to this intimacy with God in prayer. You ought to be able to always pray and not lose heart or lose hope. Look, the Lord is coming. Look, the end of verse 8 says this. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith upon the earth? The end times are not days of great faith upon the earth, you know that. And Jesus calls us to be sure that we are walking in faith. Seeing the glory of God in the midst of a world that is totally unaware of the times in which... We live. Look, I know that, that being a Christian, especially if you're kind of isolated at your work or something, can have you quitting and, and fainting and be discouraged and unproductive. And, oh, man. it's not getting. We're not making progress. But we are. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. God's with us. I, I think that, you know, if you have a prayer meeting at your church, go. Go every week. Pray. Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, imagined a time when the people might forsake the Lord and would he restore them if they prayed from afar off? And that's where we get that famous Second Chronicle 7 passage about if my people called mountain my name, humble themselves and pray. God just wants to hear from from his church. And that's how we survive. You know, Pastor Chris said we hang on to God's word and we pray. We, we have the truth and we have a relationship. What more do we need? Is the world going to get better? No, I don't think so. I mean, you just read the book of Daniel, read the prophecies of the end times, of the kingdoms that, that follow each other. It doesn't get better, it gets worse. Right? We're living in worse times. But what a great time. What a great time. I would love every week we go to church, but somebody gets saved. You know? And there's a guy just come in, oh, I just got saved. I actually had a lady in, um, in, in New Jersey wrote to us that she was on her way to the doctor's office and we were on the radio and she listened to the, just the message. And I've always found it very interesting about radio. Radio is expensive, and it's, it's uh, challenging to, to do well, but, but radio steals from you everything that as a pastor you depend upon, eye contact, personality, presentation. You know, you are reduced to a three-inch, like, crackly speaker in the back of an old Volkswagen bus, you know. That's you now. But, but what you learn as a pastor is God's word is powerful. Amen. So, you know, you, you get nothing, get this little droning voice every day. But this lady listened in God's word and she got saved. Sitting in the doctor. She goes, I didn't go in. I wanted to finish what you had to say. And she gave her life to Jesus. We live in cool times, man. You start speaking up and speaking out. There's a lot of hunger for the truth. And if you can live it out, people will come running to your door because they just want a little truth, don't they? They've got enough deception. It's an election year. We get plenty of deception. (laughs) But we need a church that shines, right? With great hope. Don't lose heart. If the Lord waits six more weeks to come, how many people can get saved in six weeks? What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Amen? Amen. Father, thank you this afternoon and this morning for what you've been speaking to us about. I know that there's much that we need to do in terms of, of our concept and our outlook when it comes to these last days. And as Pastor Chris so clearly shared about, Lord, our confidence being in your word and in the truth that is in it that it doesn't go out void it always accomplishes what you want we can can bank our life upon it you don't say it but you mean it and you mean it and we can take it for face value And, and Jesus even as what you taught the disciples here a few weeks before the cross that there would be an interim between the kingdom of God established within our hearts and then the kingdom of God established upon the earth that suffering would come false prophets would come he's here don't believe him he's over there no he's not but as it was in the days of Moses, as it was in the days of Lot, it just there was this un, uh, unwillingness and, and even an inability to see the days in which we live. But that's not the church. We see, Lord, the days in which we live. We're not ignorant of the times. May you help us to be men and women of prayer. May we recognize, God, that you would be here today if it wasn't for the more important issue of the salvation of those that you have your eye upon, that you still are calling. And so we will pray, and as you bear along with us, as you see our suffering in these days of of living for you and the the rejection that so often comes with it, may we not lose heart. Lord, you've sent us for such a time as this. This is our generation to reach. May we reach them with boldness and joy, with mercy and grace. And may you not allow us to look around and just be downcast, but may we look up for our redemption draws near. You said so, Lord. We believe you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.